Welcome, I'm Brandis Keynes Roan, the faculty director of the newly founded Center for Revitalizing American Institutions, as well as the Maurice R. Greenberg, senior fellow of the Hoover Institution and professor of political science. And I'm delighted to be here to launch our first public event, um, what we're calling the governor's, had called the governor's panel, and we know that we're trying to be upstaged by two other governors who caught wind of our plans. Um, <laughs> and we still think we have the marquee governor's event of today, and we know you will agree as this afternoon keep, uh, continues. Um, our event's entitled Executive Leadership in a Polarized Era, Rebuilding Trust in American Institutions. Moderating the panel, will be Condoleezza Rice. All three on the panel obviously need, need no introduction, so I'll keep these uh, relatively brief. Um, Condoleezza Rice is the director, uh, the Tad and Diane Taub director of the Hoover Institution and a senior fellow. From January 2005 to January 2009, Rice served as the, as the 66th sixth Secretary of State of the United States, and prior to that was George W. Bush's National Security Advisor. Much closer to home, here at Stanford, she served for seven years as Stanford's provost in the 1990s and has been a member of the faculty since 1981. Governor Wes Moore is the, is the 63rd governor of Maryland. He is the first black governor in the state's 246 year history, and just the third African-American governor, in the, in elected governor in the history of the United States. Moore's life and career have been defined by service. Before entering elected office, he served as CEO of the Robin Hood Foundation, built and ran a small business that helped underserved students navigate college, and led soldiers in combat in Afghanistan as a captain in the US Army. In 2010, Moore wrote The Other Wes Moore, a story about the fragile nature of opportunity in America, which became a New York Times bestseller. He went on to write other best-selling books that reflect on issues of race, equity, and opportunity. Moore is a graduate of Valley Forge Military Academy and College, Johns Hopkins University, and Wolfson College, Oxford, where he studied as a Rhodes Scholar. Moore and his wife Dawn have two children, Mia, 12, and James, 9, uh, Governor Moore, we're delighted to welcome you here at Hoover. Thank you. Governor Christopher Sununu is the 82nd governor from the state of New Hampshire and is currently serving his fourth term, receiving in 2020 more votes than any candidate in state history ever. With Gov <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> With Governor Sununu's leadership, New Hampshire is ranked the number one state in the country for personal freedoms by the Cato Institute. Governor Sununu grew up in Salem, New Hampshire. He graduated from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology with a Bachelor's of Science in Civil and Environmental Engineering. As an environmental engineer, he worked for 10 years cleaning up the hazardous waste sites across the country. We're delighted to welcome mm -hmm. Governor Sununu here to Hoover today. Well, thank you very much, Brandis. And uh, I'd like to just uh, thank Brandis, uh, who 
uh, came to us just a couple of years ago from um, another university across there called Princeton. Uh, they don't take our phone calls anymore after we uh, got Brandis <laughs> to come, but Brandis has taken on this faculty directorship of the Center for Revitalizing American Institutions. Um, we're going to have a conversation about those institutions. Uh, but let me just say that the reason that we wanted to do this at Hoover is that we understand uh, that Americans uh, are, are reportedly less confident in their institutions, uh, losing faith in them. Uh, but they're pretty spectacular institutions when you think about it. Uh, the ones that the Founding Fathers bequeathed to, uh, the, uh, to all of us uh, that would become institutions that would allow us to change over time peacefully, and so we believe that there is something important to preserve. Um, I want to start by uh, just thanking you both for joining us here. Um, I want to start a conversation uh, that maybe the framers would have found particularly interesting because um, they actually weren't crazy about the idea of federal power, as it turns out. Uh, they uh, moved the capital from New York. They put it in a swamp uh, between Maryland and Virginia. Mm -hmm. And they That's then true. went back to the state houses where they thought things would actually get done. So we have in some ways representatives of the framers' uh, vision of what America would be. But I want to start with a kind of personal reflection by each of you on what it is like to be governor. And I'll start by saying this. I worked for a certain governor uh, who actually made it to the presidency of the United States. And he always reminded us that his favorite job was actually governor. So I'm going to start uh, with you, uh, Governor Sununu. Uh, you've been governor since 2017. Uh, what has been fulfilling for you, what has been frustrating for you, uh, and what advice would you give to the uh, newer governor here? <laughs> well, as I was saying, this is great, by the way. I'm absolutely honored to be here and to be with Wes, who I consider a great friend. He's a great yes. governor. Um, look, being governor is really hard. There's no, no doubt it is a 24-7 challenge. There's always accountability. There's no days off. There's no vacations. Whether, God forbid, there's a shooting, there's a flood, there's an accident, whatever it is, uh, you're the one that ultimately has to make a lot of the, the in-the-moment uh, decisions. But it can be amazingly fulfilling in that way. Um, if you pull away from that, um, I guess there could be political safety in it or whatever you want to call it. But at the end of the day, um, when you challenge yourself, and I'm an engineer, right? So I love redesigning systems. In systems of, of, of service, systems of mental health, systems of you know, how are we going to deal with the opioid crisis, school funding and education, all these pieces are systems. So for me, it's an incredibly fulfilling opportunity to say, okay, um, where, where, how is it designed? Uh, where is it not working? Uh, how do we institute better customer service, right? And have that kind of approach to the individual as opposed to how do we make government better? Right? No, how do I make government more accessible? How do we make more opportunities? So um, I think it's incredibly difficult, but I think almost anyone would tell you it's, it's an incredibly fulfilling job uh, when you just jump right into it. And, and it's tough. I mean, there's no doubt about it. But, um, uh, and the last thing I want to throw out there, one of the best parts of the job, and I mean this quite sincerely, we really all get along. Yeah. Right, So across party lines, in a bipartisan way, I can pick up the phone to Wes or to almost any governor in the country and say, hey, I saw you did this. How does that work? I saw you had that problem. And in that aspect of it, it's, a, it's an amazing sense of team, which I, I personally love. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Yeah. I'm going to come back to this question of, of polarization and, mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, and partisanship in a little bit. But let me turn to you, uh, Governor. And uh, I just have to say, I, a moment of personal pride. 
Uh, Governor Moore was my White House fellow when I was uh, Secretary of State. It's true. This is and, a very big uh, deal for me. Guys. And <laughs> I obviously didn't do him any harm, so go ahead. <laughs> Thank you. And, and Madam Secretary, it is an honor to be with you and, uh, and great seeing you again. And, and, and thank you. And, and it is true. I mean, when I think about who some of the governors who have been most helpful to me as I made mm. the transition, because I'd never run for office before I became the governor. Uh, and, you know, people can think about, oh, it's this governor or that governor or which political party. The reality is you've been one of the most helpful governors to me in this transition, and that's a Republican governor who's been incredibly supportive. And so I just want to personally just say thank you, oh, thank you. for all the help that you've given to me in this transition. Um, this job is unbelievable. You know, I always say it's, um, and when people say what made you want to get into politics, I was like, I didn't. I wanted to be the governor because governor is a very different type of role. Um, there is real measurements of accountability, it is true. Uh, these are your decisions that you're gonna be held accountable for for individuals who can touch you and make sure that you're held accountable for all the decisions that you make. Uh, but I tell you, one of the most exhilarating things about it is, um, is you can actually get big things done pretty quickly. Yeah. Um, I, I remember when, uh, before I was governor, I was running one of the largest poverty fighting organizations in the country and we were working with a former governor to try to get them to uh, utilize the child tax credit in their state, which we knew would, would have fundamental impact on the child poverty rate inside the state if you can make permanent child tax credit. Worked with them for six months to try to get him to include it, told him he should include it in the state of the state, literally wrote this line in the state of the state that he should include in there. And I got an advanced copy of the state of the state and there was nothing in there about the child tax credit and nothing in there about child poverty. So I was a little frustrated. I called the head of public policy of the organization I used to run, and after I was done venting uh, and I breathed, he told me, he said, we worked for five months to get them to include a line in the speech, but what if you could write the whole speech? And that's the point. And so in the first state of the state that I gave, uh, a, you know, a few weeks after being inaugurated, uh, we devoted an entire section about how we were gonna make the, the child tax credit permanent in the state of Maryland, and two months later, I signed a bill that made the child tax credit permanent in the state of Maryland. Mm -hmm. That's the power of the job, yeah. if you choose to use it. So it's, 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 it's absolutely exhilarating and, uh, mm -hmm. and just a, a very exciting seat to be in. Great. I wanna go to some of the policy issues that you've faced before. Uh, talk a little bit about the proper relationship between the states and the federal government, which um, of course that was the founders' uh, concern. But um, obviously, the economy is at top of everyone's uh, mind. Uh, talk about how the citizens of your state think about where we are today as the United States of America, and kind of what do they expect you to do about that sure. state of affairs? So I'll say, you know, I'm uh, New Hampshire, right? So let's start with the live free or die state, right? And it's not for cool words on a license plate. It really is in the DNA. Uh, we kind of have that libertarian, uh, we as individuals come first, not the government. Uh, local control, limited government, limited taxes, uh, individual responsibility. Those are really fundamental core tenets that, that we've carried for 200 plus years. So knowing that there's a sense of real accountability, I think at the state house, not, hey, here, solve our problems, but let us have control. Know that Salem, New Hampshire is very different than Portsmouth and very different than Keene and allow those citizens to have the push and pulls. I could very easily tell every school in the state what to do if we passed a bill, but that's not right. Who knows better, the parents and the teachers of what the school needs or some guy in Concord? 
So allowing the system to work the right way, I think, is very empowering. Uh, all of us have, and I, it's no secret, I am incredibly um, disheartened by Washington, D.C., and that's the nicest way I've ever put it. Uh, I think it's an absolute disaster. And, and I think a lot of my citizens share that. Uh, they, they really do. There's no sense of trust there. There's no sense of accountability. There's no sense of even at the, uh, especially in the congressional and the Senate level, um, we let, elect kind of whoever you want. What does it matter? They don't do anything anyways. Now, that's, that's, that's kind of like a nice punchline and a throw, but that isn't good, right? That's fundamentally a, a problem, not just so much in the institution, but it's even a bigger problem and the citizens don't believe in it. Now, I think the institution is still can be very strong. I think individuals come and go, and, and again, the, the core foundations of those institutions are strong, and they can, they, you, you can pull a few levers to fix that there, but I think at least in New Hampshire, we've always had a sense of the individual, the locality, that's the priority, that comes first, maybe Concord and, and our capital in the state comes second, and a very distant third is Washington. All three have to work together, but, and I fundamentally believe that in, in, in that as well. I, very often I see a city or a town doing something that I don't like, and I have my fellow Republicans coming and saying, hey, we need to pass a bill and stop that, and I said, whoa, you're Republican. Like, we don't believe in that, right? <laughs> limited government, not just limited government when it's convenient for us, right? And even if a li very liberal town is doing something we don't like, as long as no one's being hurt by it, you've got to allow the system, the free market, to really work. And, and so that's just kind of, I think, how our citizens, that's how I approach it. I think that's how the, the citizens Citizen approach it. Yeah. yeah. I, I think, I think that's, that's, that's right. I, I think um, the thing that I also hear from a lot of people is that's, um, it's, it's not as much about the idea of limited government, but we want a government that actually works, right? We want a system where we're not waiting 18 months for unemployment insurance right. to kick in. We want to have a police force where you call 911 and you're not waiting an hour and a half for someone to show up. You want to make sure that you have your, you know, you want to make sure that you have basic facilities and basic mechanisms that are in place and people who believe in governing, who believe in accountability and who believe in showing up. You know, I, and I tell you, that's, that's one of the things that I've seen because I, I, I completely agree with you on the idea that I think people are kind of exhausted by the politics of all this stuff. They're exhausted by the back and forth um, where, you know, I, and I, I remember when I went out to, um, uh, one of the first things I had went out to when I was governor in my first week, there was a, uh, a, a boil water advisory in a, in a town called Lonaconing, which is in Western Maryland. And uh, so I went out there to go, to go assist and, uh, and go get boots on. And I met the mayor, who has since become a friend. He's a, a Republican mayor out there. And he told me, he said, Governor, do me a favor. He said, turn 360 degrees. So I turned 360 degrees. And he said to me, he said, the only guarantee I can give you is you didn't see a Democrat within five miles of anywhere you were just looking. <laughs> and, he said, and he said, but I tell you what, you're the first governor that's been here since 1996. People just want you to yeah. see them and they want you to show up, and they want you to be able to have ideas, listen to their thoughts, show a measure of concern, and be able to do something about it instead of just you know, screaming about how the other side needs to do this. And that's something that I really yeah. see amongst, amongst our folks. Hey, if, if I yeah, could, I think you said something really important there, a government that works. Yeah. Now, think of what, let's, what does that mean? What it means to you and you and you might be very different. A government that works is the government that you know, takes care of my problems. No, not necessarily. You're talking about, I think what Wes is getting at, and I think it's so important, responsiveness. Sure. When there is a need, 
the, there's a door I can walk through to get that opportunity, or someone's going to pick That's up right. the phone. And I, I always go back to that term, customer service, yep. right? Uh, I'm not saying the citizens are customers, but if you have that mentality, are they on hold for 45 minutes? Correct. And the, a lot of the services that are being uh, given aren't coming from out of Washington, D.C., per se. They're coming from the local fire department, right. the schools. What impacts your life 90% of the time in terms of government is local or close, close to home, right? So I think that's really important. I think, so I just think you bring up a wonderful point about responsiveness. And it doesn't mean what we do, you're gonna like every decision we make right. or every policy we have, but at least you're gonna get an answer. And that all flows from transparency. I think that's one of the other issues with, with Washington, right? A kind of a lack of transparency. But you go to your town selectman, you go to your school board or your teacher, there's much more connectivity there. You know a lot of them by first names, sure. right? And I think that, that brings a, an opportunity of good government, if you will. Yeah. yeah. You also have to do something that I'm going to come back to the right relationship between Washington. What would you like to have Washington do? But uh, you also have to do something that Washington doesn't do, which is live within your means. Um, so um, I, I remember when I was provost of, of Stanford, my favorite line was, um, I can't print money. I'm not the federal government. Uh, you can't print money. So, there's, there's no Maryland dollar. There's no Maryland dollar. dollar. Thank That's goodness. right. Yeah, we, yeah. Don't want that. we don't want that at all. Thanks to Alexander Hamilton. There's yeah. a, a single right. currency. Yeah. But you, you do have uh, a lot that you need to get done. Uh, there, we have problems in education, we have problems in workforce development. You mentioned some of the issues around the environment and, and how to respond uh, to climate change. We have a, a lot of issues. How do you think about priorities right now? Um, the, the, uh, you know, the word out there is the American people, somebody famously once said it's the economy stupid. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, the economy is on uh, everybody's mind, but how do you think about priorities? How do you set them? Yeah. Do you think you set them differently uh, at, in, in your states? Uh, you're a Republican, you're a Democrat. Um, I've just got to at least get you to talk from those oh, perspectives sure. just a little <laughs> yeah. bit, right? Just, yes. Um, go no, please, please. You know, I, I think it's, it's actually interesting because I feel like um, elections are not just decisions, they're azimuths, right? So I think when you think about what just happened in, in the state of Maryland, where, you know, we just finished an election cycle, we ended, and we ended up receiving, you know, more, more individual votes, I don't know, the same record as you, more individual votes than anyone has ever run for governor mm -hmm. in the history of the state of Maryland. But the reason I bring that up is this. It means that for the people that voted, I spent two years telling them what I wanted them to vote for, right? I spent two years laying out what is our vision. What is it that we want to accomplish? And so I think one of the nice things about coming off an election year is you have your marching orders. People gave it to you, and they gave you your mandate. And so when we came in and we said that there are certain things that we were going to, that we were going to prioritize, and that includes things like getting our economy going. Because there was a measure of frustration I think we all had about just how stagnant Maryland's economy was in comparison to other, other locales when you consider the assets that the state of Maryland has. So we had our marching orders, because I talked about it for two years. We had our marching orders when we said we have to increase public safety, that if people do not feel safe, they will not stay. If people do not feel safe, they will not come. And that means using an all of the above approach in the way we're going to protect families and protect neighborhoods and communities. We had our marching orders. And when we said that Maryland needs to be the state that serves, that we want to get more people engaged and involved because service is sticky and service will save us in this time of this political, div political divisiveness and political vitriol. 
We had our marching orders. I talked mm -hmm. about it for two years. And so I think one of the nice things about coming off of an election cycle is when we talk about prioritization, it's just simply how are you being responsive to what the voters just told you? They That's just right. gave you a message. Right. And now your job is to make sure that you are more so being responsive to them and prioritizing right. the things that you told them you wanted to do, and they turn around and said, and that's what we want, and that's what we bless. And, and I think, to, to build on that if I can, uh, I have 1.4 million people in New Hampshire. I don't care what their politics are. That's who I represent. I'm not, don't just represent just the Republicans. Um, you know, just on a practical sense, one thing I, I tried to do when I first became governor, and I think all governors tend to do this, which is why there's a better sense of, of trust there a little bit at the local and state level. You got to go out and, and just listen to stories. You got to spend a lot of time listening to stories. The most valuable tool you have as governor is your time. So that is what you give. So when you go out and you, you listen to 100 stories out there, and the majority of them are about the opioid crisis and mental health and their kids' access to mental health services, okay, guess, oh, I got my priorities, right? Not because I said so or my party said so. And sometimes, gee, I, you, you say, I thought this was a priority, but no one's really talking about that. Just maybe some lobbyists or, or, or some political um, hacks were, were pushing that over here. So the best way to find the priorities is to talk. I'm a big believer in the economy in that nothing can happen if you don't have a strong economy. So you say, okay, I'm gonna redesign these systems based on the priorities I heard, and I'm gonna be really amazingly good to business. And I, I, I love it when Democrats say, you're so pro-business, I said, damn right. Because guess what, if they're successful, they create jobs, they pay their business. I don't have a sales tax, I don't have an income tax, I just got rid of my interest and dividends tax. The only taxes I, we really have to fund a lot of these programs are from our businesses, right? We have an average business tax. So if I'm really strong pro-business, and in a place like New England, a little different than Maryland, but not much, you know, this isn't Oklahoma, where it's so big, uh, the idea of getting a, 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 a business to come over the border is hard. I got Maine, Vermont, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, Connecticut, all within an hour's drive. Mm. So to draw businesses in from those states and create opportunity, not for me, but for the citizens, guess what? My revenues go up. I keep cutting taxes. More people come in. I have more revenue. I can implement new system design based on what I heard. So that's how, this, that's how it actually works. And I, I think it works pretty well. I think most governors um, uh, you know, take that approach uh, fairly well. So again, spending time, and, and I, I, the number one thing I, I always say, listening to stories can be an amazing opportunity. It's hard. I mean, I can't tell you the number of, and I, I think I speak for Wes as well, you sit with a mom who lost her daughter to the opioid crisis, you, you sit with a, a dad whose brother has been struggling to try to get mental health services, or, or an uncle who now takes care of his, his sister's kids because his sister is now you know, in tr treatment and recovery somewhere, and his kids, again, are, are two school districts away, you know, they're having trouble. I focus a lot, and, and I, I think I speak for a lot of us, focus a lot on the kids. You want to talk about mental health, focus on the kids. You want to talk about the opioid and the drug crisis, focus on the 18 and under. Because if you're handling it there, if you're taking care of it there, it really sets such a, it, it has an exponential uh, payoff. And, and if I may, it was very hard. I had to, you know, I'm a, I'm a numbers guy. And I had to go work with a lot of my Republicans. And I'll throw another one out there. You know how many people I have in my legislature? 400. 400. They get elected every two years. They get paid 100 bucks a year. It is a, the largest parliamentary body outside of <laughs> British Parliament and U.S. Congress. So to now get the Republicans to say, and there's, so there's a spectrum on both sides, and I have to walk through them and say, look, if we make these investments that we maybe hadn't done before, if we rebuild the system, here's the economic payback. Here's, here's how it is. So 
getting all that with an idea is one thing. Um, having leadership and a voice publicly, because we have, we have a microphone. That's one of the best things a governor also has. We have the microphone more than anybody else. Right. So we can drive our agenda and our, and, and our message with, with good transparency. But then you, with the legislature, you've got to bring them on board too. So you've got to know who that audience is. You don't do it by twisting arms and yelling and screaming. You don't do any of that. You do it by knowing your audience and working with them one by one sometimes uh, to bring them on board based on what their priorities are. And again, the system, the system tends to work. And you've sure. had to work across the aisle. Yeah, I have, I've had, th so we, I get elected every two years as governor. Oh. Yeah, that sucks. Uh, <laughs> it's great for New Hampshire. It is awesome for the citizens. I think every governor should be elected every two years. It's hard for me because I've got to run every two years. And I also have to, I have to do the I don't state. agree with you. Yeah, I, no, I, I get it. Trust me, I get it. You know, Congress is easy, right? Congress is on vacation half the time. Running every two years is nothing to them because they spend half their time raising money anyway. We're governors. We, gotta, we have a job to do, you yeah. know, nonstop. So it, yes. it's much harder. So my legislature, I had a full Repo uh, uh, Republicans controlled the legislature. My first, third, and fourth term, Democrats controlled. Well, I'll say first and third term, Demo uh, Republicans controlled. Democrats controlled in the second term. Uh, again, I have 400 in my legislature. You know what my legislative split is one right now? 201 to 199. <laughs> and the Republicans got the Speaker of the House on the first vote, by the way. Sorry, Kevin. Uh, I, I make the joke with Kevin McCarthy on that. But with, even with that, it, it wasn't just I've got stuff done with Democrats and I got stuff done with Republicans. 201 to 199, one of my most proudest moments, and it isn't just me, it's everyone collectively came together. We got the budget passed unanimously. Unanimous budget. I mean, that was an amazing, amazing thing. And it was, but again, it's not me. I think everyone, again, was connected to the citizens, connected to the responsibility. Everyone had to give a little, get a little. Yeah. It, was, it was done the right way. And, and that's something I, I take a lot of pride in. And st states can do that. That isn't yeah. just New Hampshire. Almost any state could do that. Washington, not so much. Obviously, that's, that's proven out. Um, so it, it can work, right? And that's the faith I always have. That's why I remain an optimist, both statewide and even nationally. Because the, even in these modern times, the models still really work in terms of the value of democracy, the, the opportunity it creates for individuals to have a voice and the results that they can see, it, see with it, no matter who's in charge. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. yeah. Steve, yeah. No, I, I think that's right. Because you, you actually succeeded a Republican governor yeah. in, in Larry no, and, yeah. and, and we were very intentional about being able, you know, we have a little different where we have a, a, a Democratic House and a Democratic Senate. And, you know, people think, well, that's great. You can just get anything that you want passed. Like, not all Democrats right. are the same. It's, it's, very, it is, it's, a, it's a very complicated dynamic. Um, but the reality is, is that when we first went in, you know, we introduced 10 bills in our first legislative session. Um, and not only did we end up going 10 for 10 on our legislature, we went 10 for 10 bipartisan. So we had Democrat and Republican support on every single bill that we introduced. And we had to work for it. But it was important. And it was important for, for a few different reasons. One is it's not just about passage. It's about implementation. And mm -hmm. even if you say you have the votes to get something by just getting a straight party line, good luck implementing that. Right. And good luck making it sustainable. And good luck making sure that the entire state understands the benefit of it. If you can actually forge where you can create not just partners, but, but, but advocates for the bills, right. it makes a meaningful difference, not just on those bills, but also what you're looking to get done, what you're hoping to, to get done next. And, and, and I think that the second piece is also, is also a really important piece, and, and, and Governor, you, you touched on this. It's when you think about the impact of this work, the how you go about doing it 
uh, is also really important because it opens up new avenues of approach. Sometimes people say like, how did you get Republicans to vote for an increase on the minimum wage? How'd you get Republicans to vote for increased, in, you know, increased uh, earn income tax credits? How'd you get Republicans? And my answer was simple, is that when you're able to work on the things that we knew we were able to get grand levels of, you know, individual levels of support on, and like, for example, one of the first things we worked on together, we got um, uh, pathways for free dental care and health care for members of our National Guard, the first state in the country that now has that. And it's because I just don't understand how someone is willing to put on the uniform of this country and put on the flag of their state on their shoulder who still has to worry about dental care, right? Mm -hmm. So Maryland got that passed. Awesome. But then while you're here and I'm getting, you know, delegate so-and-so or Senator so-and-so from Allegheny County or from, you know, or from, you know, Queen Anne's, I'm like, now while I'm here, can I talk to you about the minimum wage? <laughs> and can I talk about the impact that's gonna have on your community <laughs> and your district? And we're gonna talk directly to the people about it because when you can do that and build up that type of support, you almost don't even have to become your own advocate. They'll call their own senators and they'll say, I heard about what's happening, I heard about the governor's bill in X, Y, and Z, and I want you to support them. You now have built up an army of advocates who can go and push and make sure that people are advancing the policy issues. But it takes a measure of intentionality. And to your point, it takes a measure of trust. People need to have that sense of trust. And so how you go about investing in it, how you go about building that well, and how you go about carefully utilizing it does become important. And, and no trust is ever earned by yelling That's at somebody. It. I don't, I don't earn it. your trust. I don't inspire you by, by yelling at you. And I'm, I, from a political standpoint, um, I'm going to guess some of your toughest fights politically are with your friends, right? 100%. Or with the Democrats. And, and the toughest arguments I ever have, I call it, it's Thanksgiving dinner, right? Yeah. The our toughest <laughs> arguments I ever have are you have Thanksgiving dinner, you have your crazy uncle and someone's spouting off about politics and you have fights about the Patriots versus the, the New York Giants or whatever it is. That was, that was what, and those, but when you leave the house, right, your family first, right? You're going to defend. But some of the hardest arguments you have right. sometimes, even in politics, are behind closed doors with folks who are like, hey, we're Democrats, we're all going to do this together, right? Or we're, we're Republicans, yeah. we're all going to do this together, right? No, everyone has a different spectrum, a different taste. And you have to have a, an open ear, That's right. right? You have to understand where they're coming from. You know, if I could, I don't mean to go too far, but one of the biggest things lacking in this country, culturally and really in politics, is empathy. I talk about this a lot. We all know what empathy is, right? Having an understanding of where someone is coming from, uh, maybe what their background is. But do we practice it? Empathy is a skill. You have to practice empathy in tough negotiations. When tempers get high, are we practicing saying, boy, this person is really adamant. I'm really in a 180 degree difference, different opinion place. Tell me more. Explain to me why you're seeing it this way. What in, whether it's in your background or what am I not seeing, give me more information. I'm not convinced. And if you have that open ear, again, maybe they don't agree with you completely in the end, but there's trust there. They know that you're bringing them to the table to have the discussion, and maybe they didn't get everything they wanted this time, maybe you didn't either, but they know you're gonna, they're gonna be invited back. That's right. And that's the most, one of the, again, you're giving your time as, as, as the executive leader. You're giving your time to them. You're inviting them back to the table, even though they don't just politically disagree, but maybe vehemently on, on an actual issue. Um, so I just, I, again, I, I think that's the absolute right approach, and I think that's, everyone thinks the toughest arguments are with across the aisle. It's easy. Arguing with, for me to argue with a Democrat is, is easy. Like, of course we differ. I'm not shocked at that, right? It's when your friends come at you and say, by the way, Governor, you're not getting what you want. Whoa, what are you talking about? What are you? And that's okay. Can't get everything you want. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, let's take up this question because um, I, I'd like you to now 
think about Washington. I, I know you don't really want to do that, but let's, let's think about Washington. Hard pass. Yeah, you'll pass, right. <laughs> uh, you, you mentioned some words that I don't think we would associate with the situation in Washington today. Uh, trust. We know that Americans uh, are losing trust in their government. Uh, you mentioned empathy, uh, which comes from listening. Uh, those are not words we would, would use with, with Washington today. So how do we fix that? You know, I, I, I say sometimes to my uh, fellow citizens, uh, we, we blame everything on our leaders, but some people say you get the leaders that you deserve. Okay. So uh, right. what, what are we doing that is really bringing that kind mm -hmm. of behavior uh, to Washington? And to be, to be fair, Washington does get some things done. And you could have sure. this yeah. conversation sure. with uh, senators, uh, some senators on a bipartisan basis mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. But it just seems to have uh, to, to be mm -hmm. much less the case these days mm -hmm. in Washington. Yeah. So you want to start? I, I mean, I, I'd say. Um, I actually don't think that measure of cynicism is a bad thing um, because I think it's valid. Mm. I, I think a lot of people have come up as the consequence of bad systems and the consequences of bad structures. You know, I, I mean, I, I, I think about it in, in my own life, right? One of the earliest memories I have was when my dad died in front of me because he didn't get the mm. healthcare he needed. Right, that I, I, you know, one of the earlier memories I have was when I was 11 years old and I first had felt handcuffs on my wrists because I grew up in a neighborhood that was over-policed and we knew it, right? That, that my mother didn't get her first job that gave her benefits. And this was an immigrant single mom, did not get her first job that gave her benefits until I was 14 years old. And by the way, this is a woman who went on to earn a master's degree. So when we're having conversations about inequitable pay between men and women or inequitable pay between people of color and non, you know, I say this is not an academic exercise to me. I grew up in this. So I actually think that this, the, the, the brokenness that people are seeing and experiencing and that they're sharing with us, we shouldn't poo-poo it because it's real. And for many people, it's justified. I, I think that the thing we want to remember is, and frankly, it's something that still sits me, I'm never going to lose my cynicism of the system. And I'm the governor. <laughs> I'm never going to lose that. But cynicism can be my companion. I just won't let it be my captor. Hmm. Write that down. That's awesome. <laughs> I, I really mean it. That's, you know, that's cynicism awesome. is something that I that's always so hold on to. It's like, you know, it's like, yeah, you know, there are things need to be fixed. But I just won't let it control my optimism that we can actually fix it. And I think part of that comes back to, uh, and this becomes you know, the, the job for elected officials or for people who are working in the social service sector, people working in philanthropy, people working in the private sector. You have to show an ability and an interest in actually fixing it. If you show an ability of being able to get things done, people will trust you to get more big things done. But if you simply spend your time yelling at another side, <laughs> thinking that if I scream louder, that gives me a better chance to win an argument. If you simply spend your time talking about how broken things are without offering any frame of a solution, then you shouldn't wonder why people are not looking to you for solutions. And so I think the, the, the way we have to address it is we have to show we can actually get things done. 
If you show you can get things done, if you show, whether it's at a state level, local level, or the federal level, if you show you can get things done, people will give you the, the trust to then trust you can actually get more things done. But I don't think that we should minimize the cynicism that people have because it's valid. I, boy, that was, I really mean it. That, that was very well said. So uh, to, is Joni here? Is, Joni uh, here? is Senator Ernst here? She's coming. To okay, right. yes, so right. I'm going to make, I always check if there's a senator in the room before I open my mouth. But <laughs> <laughs> fourth term, I really don't care anyway. So let me, let me define my cynicism. And, and I say this as a joke, but also quite sincerely. Let's take all of the U.S., all, every U.S. senator. Let's say for one second, we, they all get fired tomorrow and you replace them all with 100 random working adults in America, just randomly chosen, is it gonna get worse? Are they gonna get less done, right? Mm -hmm. So let's understand they have, and I'm not just picking on, on the Senate because the Congress is just as bad, they've set that bar so low, right? Expectations are now so low that if they pass anything, they pass a, 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 a continuing resolution on a budget, which is a failure by the way, they want everyone to give them applause and pat them on the back. So that is the foundation of my cynicism. There are things that can be done, whether they do get done or not. Uh, this is what I think. First, term limits. Absolute, mm -hmm. you need term limits for Congress and the Senate. Mm -hmm. you can, I'm not saying one term, but you have to give them term limits because naturally you're always gonna have a certain percentage that have no political uh, in, uh, uh, bias, if you will, in terms of doing one thing or another thing politically. It, it frees them up a, a certain percentage a little bit. And with numbers so close, Right? That, that can be just enough to start getting more things done. Second thing, and this is a really hard one to fix, almost impossible, is gerrymandering. So gerrymandering in this country is the number one thing that has destroyed the process. And, and it's really, that one's a tough one because you can't put that, that genie back in the bottle. That's done at the state level. You'd need a lot of states to, to step up and say, yeah, we, we really didn't do that right. And the party, that, even the party that's in charge is going to say, we're going to give up some districts and we're going to let, you know, make it more independent. But you used to have maybe 150 congressional seats that might go back and forth in any given election. Now it's about 50. Because the Republican in, in a real gerrymandered district is more worried about getting primaried than the Democrat. So what happens? They move their politics further right. Democrats move their politics further left. They take deeper and deeper corners into the extremes. Even though maybe that's not where they started, politically that becomes safe for them. So the gerrymandering is a problem. Campaign finance reform, huge issue. McCain-Feingold is awful. Especially for a state like New Hampshire. Do you know in a U.S. Senate race, over 95% of the money that is spent in a U.S. Senate race in New Hampshire is not from New Hampshire. It is not based on our citizens' interests or our interests. It's from outside the state. And that's a real problem. And you have all this dark money that comes in and all that. I think, again, a good piece of legislation can fix all that. They just haven't chosen to do it. And if you have a system that is more, whether the elections are really more based on what your, your citizens are looking for, what your citizens are investing in, the voice of those people, I, then the elected officials are going to be more responsive to the actual citizens as opposed to, to more national interests. And the last thing, and I think this is a huge opportunity and can and should be done to everyone's benefit, and, this, and again, we're saying that because we're governors, I think, um, if you get leadership specifically out of the White House, and neither Democrats nor Republicans have, have been willing to do this, that says, hey, where you started, the founding, we say in New Hampshire, the founding fathers were wicked smart, <laughs> right? The states come first. Give the states the authority, the regulatory control, the, fi the financial, whatever it is. Let us do what we do best. Because you know what? What's best for Maryland isn't necessarily best for New Hampshire or Massachusetts or, or California. 50 states, 50 different constituencies, 50 different sets of priorities based on our citizens and our citizens' needs. How does Washington know what the priorities of my school are? They don't. 
right? or, or the priorities of, of his mental health system are. They don't. So let Wes make the decisions. Let Wes have control of that. So if you get a Congress and a president that go back to what this country was founded in, how the institutions were supposed to run, and say, yeah, let's decentralize this. The other big issue we have, and I don't know uh, if you do that, the, the majority of the laws that are passed, okay, fine, we pass laws. But you know what's really controlling thing? All the bureaucratic rules that are made that you never hear of, that most of the con Congress doesn't even know about. The EPA controls this, Department of Education controls that. They're setting the rules, which in more instances than not, are way more impactful than whatever the law was. Right? Those rules are affecting your family, your business, your opportunities more than anything. So if you send that process back to the states, well then the rules are being done in the states. And you as a citizen have way more control. You can talk to West, you can talk to his team, you can talk to your legislators at a local level a thousand times easier than Washington and they're gonna listen because you're voting for them, right? Mm -hmm. So that by, again, decentralizing that process the way it was originally designed, I think is an amazing opportunity. But yeah, it's all screwed up, but it can be fixed and, and that's the optimism, <laughs> it really can. And I don't have all the answers, of course, but it really can be fixed. Um, but you do need political will and, and someone that's, the political will to say, by the way, I'm going to work across the aisle, I'm going to give up power, I'm going to give up control, and understand you will be politically rewarded for it. There's a the sense that you wouldn't be rewarded. You will because you're giving people what they want. You're giving them control and a say in their, opp their opportunity. Yeah. Our, as politicians, as elected officials, the opportunity is not for us. Our, we're just trying to create doors of opportunity for you guys. And I think as, the more you promote and encourage that system, the more people get excited about it, the more they participate, the more they have a voice, the better it all works. It's a feedback, as an engineer, again, it's the feedback response yeah, system. Yeah. And if you tweak it a little bit and get it back to the way it was originally designed, there's no reason we can't you know, really start cooking on, on doing some serious work for the yeah. country. I hope Brandis is taking notes. These are things we might want to look at in the Center for the Revitalization of American Institutions. Let, yeah. me, let me go to the other part of that. So we've talked about federalism and uh, I think, I, I actually think you're right about the role of the federal government, you know, let's, let's uh, worry about foreign policy, let's worry about immigration. There are some things the federal government yeah, has to do. Uh, when it gets into things that it really can't do, it also loses credibility because it can't do them, mm. whereas perhaps the states would do better. But there's also the other piece of it, which is just the horrible polarization, right? Yeah. Just the yeah. sense that uh, my job is to make sure you don't succeed. Mm. And that gets uh, reflected in uh, the fact that uh, social media brings the most uh, aggressive uh, comments, the most negative comments, the angriest comments. Uh, politics seems to be about anger to a certain extent. It in, raises money. It raises money. So raises money. talk about the polarization problem. You've talked about it. I, I have a quote here from you. You say, at a time when people's response to the political toxicity is to lean out, I'm asking you to lean into politics. But uh, I have students, I have friends who just say, you know, I just don't want to do anything. I don't want any part of it. Yeah. I stopped reading the newspapers. I don't want any part of it. So how do we deal with that sense of polarization and what comes with it, which is a, a sense of despair? Sure. Yeah. And, and, it's, and it's true that there, I mean, part of the challenge is, is that whether it's social media, whether it's uh, uh, news platforms, which, which we have to remember, these are businesses, right? These are businesses with shareholders. And the reality is you can, we can tell whether it is X or Instagram or whether you're talking about cable news networks, they have one exclusive goal and that is to gain market share 
and to hold it, right? Um, and that means oftentimes you are gonna speak to as vibrant and as, and, as, uh, and as rabid a base as possible because it's the best way of making sure that you can keep people and hold people because it's not about education, it's really more about validation. Uh, and so that does become a problem when you're looking at where people are getting their information from that doesn't have an ulterior motive. Because all these things have not just ulterior motives, they have business models behind them. Um, I think the thing that we have got to center in on, and, in a, and that, was, that was during my inaugural address, um, <laughs> where I was asking people to, you know, at a time when people were being asked to lean out, I'm asking them to lean in. And I'm asking them to get to know each other. That we've got to be, and I think about the state of Maryland, where we are going to be a state that gets to know each other again. We're going to be the state that serves. You know, one of the things that we uh, initiated and got passed in our first, in our first session, and we, and we just launched it, Maryland is now the first state in this country that has a service year option for all of our high school graduates. And a big reason for that, and so every single high school graduate now has an option to have a year of service to the state. And they can choose however they want to do it. They can work in the environment, they can work with returning citizens, they can work with older adults, they can work with veterans. It's completely their choice. We tell them, just tell us what makes your heart beat a little bit faster. And we wanna provide a paid pathway for you to be able to do that. And we do it because I'm a big believer in experiential learning <coughs> and give people an opportunity to see what it is that they wanna do and give them a, a path to do it. We do it because I'm a big believer in an earned financial cushion for everybody who graduates who completes the program. They also receive a $6,000 stipend that they can use towards higher education. They can use it towards a trade program. They can use it towards buying a car or putting a down payment on a home, totally their choice. And we believe this is a great workforce development tool, but also importantly, it's this. We believe in this time of political divisiveness and vitriol that service is gonna help to save us. Where I know I saw it, where you know, I had people who I served with in Afghanistan and they came and campaigned for me when I was running for governor. Many of them were not Marylanders. Many of them were not Democrats. They literally just came and door knocked on my behalf and were telling people, let me tell you about the guy that I served with. Because service is sticky. And so I believe in this time when people are just being forced to retreat and being rewarded for it, when individuals can just say the most bombastic things because they're speaking to a certain base and being rewarded for it, that if we can create a, a spirit of service and a culture where we can actually get to know each other again and get away from that measure of divisiveness, that we're gonna put ourselves on a better plane to, be have, to have actually a more, a more hopeful and frankly a more inclusive future and the one that, we're all, that we all should be rooting for. Yeah, this question of, uh, of some kind of service year, uh, maybe even voluntary national service has, has come up because we don't know each other very well Sorry. anymore. Um, I remember after the 2016 elections, uh, a, a number of colleagues saying, you know, maybe I should go understand what those people in Alabama think. And uh, my view is, you know, when you have to do an uh, anthropological dig on your fellow citizens, we, we have a problem. And we don't know each other, red state, blue state, flyover states, coasts, et cetera. And so uh, there and are some opportunities for people to get to know each other, but they're few and far between. There are, and you cannot claim that you love the country when you hate half of the people in it. Huh? You can't, yeah. right? Yes. You can't claim that you love the country when you're despised by half of it. Mm -hmm. That's right. And so I just, 
I mean, and, and for me, frankly, I mean, I got it. I got my experience was from the military. I joined the army when I was 17 years old. You know, I like to say I, I was, I was so young I couldn't even sign the paper. My mother signed the paperwork for me because I was still a minor. But after my teenage years, she was willing to sign whatever paperwork that the military <laughs> put in front of her. Um, but, but it gave me an experience to meet people I never would have had a chance to meet. Yeah. Hmm. To travel to parts of the country. I mean, I would have never gone to Fort Benning, Georgia, or Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri, or, for, or, or Fort Bliss, Texas. I would have never had a reason to go there had it not been for my experience in the military. And it made me a better person. And so if we can create opportunities for people to get to know each other, to experience new things, experience new culture, experience people who you might have never had a chance to meet or know before, it's going to give you a greater depth, a greater breadth, and frankly, give you an opportunity to expand that definition of who are you fighting for? Yeah. Because right now, it's incredibly insular. Yeah, of course. I think that's yes. that, spot freaking on. So, because I, I, I hear that and then I think, because I was thinking about this institute, what you guys, what one of your, your, your missions, something that you guys are talking about is, what are we gonna do for that, let's call it the sixth, seventh, eighth grader, to get them started in that mindset of why service is important, why should they? It's, don't do it for the $6,000, although that's a great, like you said, that's a great opportunity, but what's gonna inspire them to do that? And for me, it's, you know, when, as a governor, it's okay, let's talk civics, right? How do we instill, how do these systems work? What are these institutions we're talking about? How are they designed? Where do they work? What are the pros and cons? If we're not building that foundation of what civics is, what good citizenship is, what tithing your time to your community is, the value, you know, it's, it sounds old school, you know, you, it's Christmas, you know, it always feels better to give than to get. It's so true. But you, you, don't, you can't just say that and expect your kids to know it and walk away. I think I, I put a lot of the blame on the, on the when you look at, at the younger generation, the angst and all of this out there, the fact that we are at an all, you know, 50 year low in recruitment in the military and in other uh, forms of service. Um, why is that, right? Because I think my generation as parents, I think we, we, we missed the ball a little bit and I take that on very personally. Man, we, where did we miss it? I think we took a lot of things for granted. So like in, in New Hampshire, we said, okay, a couple things. You're not gonna graduate high school unless you pass the, uh, a core civics exam. You're not gonna graduate high school unless you can pass the naturalization exam that we ask immigrants to pass. Shouldn't you be up to the same, you know, why would we ask folks coming into our country to, to live up to a different standard than we ask even, even our own kids? Um, you know, we just passed a, uh, millions of dollars to put into uh, new textbooks that simply say both online and, and actual textbooks. There are actual textbooks in, in school still, uh, pages <laughs> and paper and all that. But uh, that we're, we're rewriting a lot of our social studies curriculum around what is New Hampshire, New Hampshire's constitution, uh, the US constitution, just to give them that foundation. Because I think the more you understand how these foundations, how these institutions came to be, the more you appreciate the good and the bad, and you may agree or disagree with certain things, but at least now you're coming from a place of knowledge. I, I think there's so much of what we see out there that is, is dangerous and, and whether you call it angst or you know, fighting the system, and they don't even know what the system is. Yeah. And it's not their fault. It's not. I get frustrated seeing a lot of these young people, but I don't blame them, I blame us for not instilling that. So both as a governor and as a dad, I, I try to take a lot of pride in, in doing what we can to, to reinstill not just the values of what we're doing, but what it is, what these institutions that we're talking about are and why they're worth saving and why they're actually worth being optimistic about, not we have to abolish this and, and destroy that and democracy's over and all that kind of, no way. That is not the case at all. Um, what I, well, I won't say who, but a former president, um, <laughs> 
once told me, one that we, I think we all, for the most part, admire up here, uh, once told me, um, uh, ear, earmuffs, um, <laughs> assholes come and go, but institutions, American institutions stand the test of time. And the way he put it to me was, we went through a civil war, right? Could have torn this country apart. The institutions stood strong. We fought back slavery. We, we went through a, a, such a division, but our institutions stood. We went through world wars. We went through the 60s, 1968. Martin Luther King, Bobby Kennedy, assassinated, right? Nixon comes on board with all that chaos. The whole world, it's over, right? No, we stood the test of time. Those terrible things happened, and we, we were able to come through because our institutions were strong. 9-11, you know, the pandemic, the institutions have stood strong. So while we have some, I think, rules and laws that may need shifting, while we have some uh, individuals that I think uh, put their ego and self-interest ahead of the greater good, that's temporary stuff. The institutions are really solid when you look at the value of law enforcement. Do we have problems in laws law enforcement? Of course we do. But I'll put the anti-corruption of, of our law enforcement, the value of our judicial system up against almost any countries in the world. It does actually a very good job. And the fact that we have new incentives sometimes new, sometimes they change, that say, hey, when there is corruption, when there is wrongdoing, we're going to bring it to the forefront. We're going to address it. Doesn't always happen as fast as we want, but it does happen. The system is incentivized to be that way. Not because Washington says, because it's local. When you keep it in the states, when you keep the power at the city level, when you keep the power locally and in your neighborhoods and in your communities, what happens? The value of that service, my son can see the value of the service because it's helping his neighbors and his friends and his family. Right? But it really comes back, I think, to still understanding the, the core values uh, around civics and, and what these things are that we're even talking about. Yeah, yeah. it's something that we don't teach enough in the university yeah. either. Yeah. It's so. I was um, going to say just yeah, one thing. Ahead. I think the, the, the values are enduring, but we can't forget that they're fragile. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and, and that is why I just, I just think we cannot take these, some of these larger attacks on democracy that we have seen, we cannot take them lightly. Oh, sure. Um, and, I, and I just simply say because, you know, we have, uh, you're, you're absolutely right that, you know, we have to be a system of laws. Um, we also, though, have to understand that the ability to alter the laws, which actually see fewer people and not more, and that when you have people who are, can and will blatantly go out and not just violate it, but, and again, not just, not just violate it, but literally use that as a rallying cry to get more people on board, we cannot minimize some of these dangers to basic democracy and basic freedoms that we continue to see or condone it or push it away or equalize it because with some of these things that we are seeing, this is not about political parties. And this is not about uh, expression of democratic rights. You know, and I just say this, you know, one thing where, you know, or, you know, or election denialism and all this other stuff. I mean, I, I, mean I, I, was, I was running against somebody who was literally asked that, you know, would he accept the terms of the election? And his answer was, it depends on what the results were. Mm -hmm. There's a danger to that, mm -hmm. that I think we have to be very clear and be very clear-throated about, about what that means and what that, what that compromise of our democracy can and should look like. Yeah. Right. Yes. Uh, 
in, in just a moment, we're going to turn to you. And uh, you can ask questions for a little bit. Uh, as you know, I always say that since I'm a professor, I will call on someone if nobody raises their hand. So please uh, get your, your thoughts ready. But I want to I go to one last question. It's where you were taking us. Uh, we are about to have another election cycle. And uh, one of the things that we know from our work at the center is some 35% of Americans are just not sure that their elections are actually free and fair. That's really pretty devastating for yep. a mm -hmm. democracy. Um, and I don't want to get into uh, the politics of that, but I'd like to ask you to, to talk about the state's responsibilities in terms of elections themselves. Uh, the question was left to the states by the Constitution to run the elections. Mm -hmm. uh, what are you doing uh, looking to 24 to make sure that the elections are not just free and fair, that's a mm -hmm. term, but efficient. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I often think to myself, do we really need to wait three weeks to find out who <laughs> won that election? Uh, one of the reasons I think people are losing, losing confidence is the elections don't seem to be very well run. It's just kind of a competence mm -hmm. issue. So uh, we have been doing some work with election officials, actually uh, people who come here who are just election officials, and they're kind of accountants, and they really mm -hmm. didn't expect to be in the crosshairs politically. They just want to run a good election. Uh, are you making efforts at that? How are you thinking about that? It uh, seems to be harder than it should yeah, be these I'll, days. Yeah, I'll jump on this one only because uh, the first of the nation primary is coming up. <laughs> yes, now, we, I'm, we I'm, know. We know that, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and you should all come. I got front row tickets to the circus, my friends. If you want to come, come watch the show. It's a, it's a heck of a scene. So I'm, I'm in a state in New Hampshire. I, I think we're pretty blessed. People in New Hampshire really do believe in, in how we run elections. We're very good that way. But let me tell you why. You know what the first thing we do when we get an election machine in the state? We've always done this. We rip the guts out. You cannot connect any of our uh, actual voting booths to the internet, right? So if you wanted election fraud, you'd need like mass collusion with 220 city and town moderators, right? So it's just not possible. We only do paper ballots. Frankly, I think one of the, the problems is technology. You lean more into technology and this iPads and electric voting machines, you got problems. So we, every ballot is paper, so it's right there. There's no just, I punched some buttons and then I got a receipt. So your ballot, if someone wants a recount, is sitting right there in the box and they will recount it right there in the box. I, I remember 2020, I was governor at the time, Iowa did, uh, did the caucus and uh, I think they're still counting the votes. I mean, really, I mean, I feel bad for Pete, for Buttigieg, because he won that, but no one knew he had won the Iowa caucus till it was way too late, right? And, and, you know, so he lost all that momentum because they tried to be cute by it and do all this crazy technology stuff. You come to New Hampshire, you fill in your ballot, we got a winner that night, and that's the way we do it every single time. So having, I almost, I'm not saying go simple, but it's not that hard, right? Um, so... You know, nationally, I, I, I'll, I'll talk a little bit nationally, uh, obviously just on the Republican side. You know, what Brian Kemp did in Georgia was amazing because he did the right thing. What, what Doug Ducey did in Arizona was the right thing. So I think at the local level, we take a lot of pride that it isn't about politics and how do I game this for my party and my president or whatever it is. It's really about making sure you do the right thing because the, the, at the end of the day, it's the, state's, it's the state's role. You should not have federalized elections. Now you've got a real problem. It, it would be a disaster if you did that for a variety of reasons. Um, 
it's that 35% is disheartening, right? That's Republicans and Democrats, right? This election denial stuff has happened on both sides of the aisle. And obviously Trump is the big one, right? Trump's the one that's on the front page right now, without a doubt. But historically it has gone to both sides of the aisle and it shouldn't be political. It's just, it's really tough. I take it very seriously. I know, I know West says, I think all the governors do. Yep. No governor wants their state to not get it right. And that's not about the, the, what, who wins, it's about getting it right where the citizens believe in it. So, um, and that's why it shouldn't be federalized. Right, because states and governors take that responsibility on, I think, very seriously. And I'm not saying one state does it better than the rest, although New Hampshire does it better than the rest. But, but, <laughs> but there are certain things, I think, that, that work and don't work, and we can learn from each other. And, right. and I'm not saying, yeah, yeah, let's use technology. That sounded like a good idea. Nah, it wasn't great, right? Let's use hanging chads. Uh, not so great, right, for Florida. And we learned from that. So you, there, the good news is this. If you keep it in the state's hands, you can constantly work to make the system better. The only thing I, because I, uh, I, I, I agree with much of that, um, the only thing I add is, you know, w there's a few things that we've been focusing on. You know, one is how are you increasing access for people to be able to make their voices heard in this process, and that includes everything from extending early voting, that includes things like making sure, you know, that uh, really working on the enhanced, uh, enhanced protections of, of mail-in balloting, uh, day of, and hour extension, but really making sure that everybody who is legal to vote can make sure their vote is registered. That helps to build up a sense of confidence when people feel like that the state is really working to ensure that. I think the second piece though is this, is um, we have put very real protections around election workers. There are people who are, who are, who are volunteering their time and people who, are, who now find themselves under threat, who find their safety being compromised because they're choosing to be election poll workers. And one thing that we have done is making sure that we are intensifying laws that are protecting these individuals who are doing this job and those who are trying to make them feel less safe, those who are threatening them, and those who are intimidating them will be prosecuted under the fullest extent of the law. We are gonna protect our election workers, which is also going to incentivize more people to take on something that is truly the foundation of our democracy. That's great. Thank you. Excellent. Let me turn to you now in the audience, right here. In, in, can we get a microphone down here? Yes, turn to your right and you'll see somebody running at, a mic, yes. running at you with a microphone. Okay, um, my question is, you know, if we need to reform Washington, and some ideas are really good, you know, like stopping redistricting and also uh, making term limits, who is gonna vote for that? Is it Washington gonna vote for that? or states can also make influence in, in, in making it happen. Mm -hmm. yeah, go ahead. Well, my, my two cents is on campaign finance, that has to come out of DC, right? Because that's a national problem and, and, and it, the McCain-Feingold didn't work. On the redistricting, you need people that just do the right thing in their legislatures back home. I'm the only governor in the country that didn't sign a congressional redistricting bill last year. Republicans gave me a, a redistricting bill for my congressional seats. And they gave me like three of them and I vetoed every single one of them. And it really upset them. And I said, we're not going down that gerrymandering road. So it's a combination, you know, where there's solutions to be had on, on both the state and federal side. Yeah, no, I, I think that's, and you know, you take a look at some of those, even the issues you just mentioned. Uh, you're right, some, some are federal, uh, some are state. And, but I, I, I do agree with the, with, with the premise when we're talking about the redistricting in particular. You know, you take a look at the state of Maryland. We really have one competitive congressional seat in the state of Maryland. Of all our congressional seats, one is competitive, right? The sixth district. Everything else 
it's either Democrat or it's Republican, and the, and the main challenge you have is a primary. And so there is something that we have got to fix in the way the redistricting is, 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 is done within this country. And, and I would add, I think if Congress voted for term limits, everyone in America would say thank you. They would be politically rewarded for that. Sure, their careers may be cut short, but frankly, that, that's fine. It's public service, not a public career. Uh, right? Who, who, where's the term public career anywhere? Right? It should never be that. I, we don't have term limits in New Hampshire. I've served four terms, eight years, and I'm choosing not to run again. I would love, I love this job, I'd love to run again, but it's not, it's not right. I think only one other governor has ever served eight years in New Hampshire, because we have that just a natural sense of, now we're, we're moving on. It's why we only pay our legislature a hundred bucks, right? You know? Well, the only thing I'd say, I, I think, I, 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 my pushback on that would be, I think we do have term limits and they're called elections, right? We just have to be more engaged and involved in this election process. Mm -hmm. the, the challenge is when someone's in the seat, it's very difficult to unearth an incumbent. Um, financially, it's difficult to unearth an incumbent. Name recognition, it's difficult to unearth an, an incumbent. The interest that they've already been working and building up, it's very difficult to unearth an incumbent. So, so you know, while, while I don't know if I, to the extent and the, and the structure that I would agree with, or that I think we can get term limits done, we all need to be more involved in the democratic process because we do have term limits. The person's not doing their job, get them out. That's right. And get someone new in. That's right. A couple more questions. Uh, let's see, over here. Hi, I'm our first year undergrad at Stanford and I'm a resident of New Hampshire, so I have a question for you. <laughs> <laughs> the hard part is making sure she comes back. Let's not get too excited. <laughs> okay, so I have two questions for you. So you talked about increasing civic education through the citizen test and incorporating the textbook. So after just recently finishing the K-12 system in New Hampshire, I witnessed how there was a high teacher turnover in, after COVID in my public high school. And I wanted to know like what support systems you have for teachers to teach and engage students in civics. Sure, so I'm sorry, do I, just so I hear the question right, how do we, are we retaining teachers effectively? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, and yeah. engaging them and engaging them to teach in the civics. Yeah, so, uh, so a couple things. Um, the state very rarely puts, New Hampshire as a state very rarely tells teachers what to teach. We don't really tell, one of the few things we did is we said you're gonna teach the Holocaust, I actually signed that bill and we're gonna teach civics. Um, you know, we have one of the highest teacher retention rates in the country, which is great. One of our challenges on, on as a side is special ed teachers, we can't find nearly enough of those. So it isn't so much uh, a teacher's gonna say because I tell them you have to stay and I tell them how to teach. Giving them, I think, flexibility. Giving them kind of the, the building blocks there. I don't tell a teacher how to teach. I should never do that. Um, if a parent isn't happy with what's happening in a classroom, they work with their school board, you know, and, and, and they, they work the process there. I think one of the keys is keeping everything local. Right? That way the teacher feels connected to the parents. The system feels connected to the parents and the student and the teacher. And, there, and that communication has to be there. As soon as the state comes in and says, oh, by the way, thou shalt do this, we basically say, look, you're gonna, this is the test. We're not doing the common core thing. We're not telling you what to teach. We're not giving you new fangled you know, nonsense uh, that nobody can understand. We're giving the base, just, just really the basics and letting the teachers do what they do best. Teachers are amazing, right? But you, you, they, you gotta let the best of them shine through and, and, and you do that primarily just by setting a few guidelines and getting the heck out of the way. Yeah, time for a couple more questions. I'm gonna go this side over here for a second. Thank you. 
Um, so one of the institutions that a lot of people don't trust anymore is the Supreme Court. Um, I think like the confidence is like 25% if I remember correctly. Um, I think the judicial system is supposed to like um, function behind the scenes, like the fact that a lot of Americans know the names of the justices is like unhealthy. Um, <laughs> and I think in other states too, like Wyoming, right? Like you elect justices onto um, the state Supreme Court. So what are your thoughts on like maybe um, gaining the public's trust in the Supreme Court? And another thing is like um, in terms of the confirmation process, it's gotten like a lot more um, heated. Like I think um, justices used to be confirmed by like in a bipartisan way, like even Justice Sonia Sotomayor was well over 60 votes. So how do we fix the, um, this problem of justices also just being confirmed um, in a very partisan way? Hmm. Go first? No. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I, don't have a, I don't have a quick, easy answer for that. But. No, I mean, I don't have a, I don't have a quick, yeah. easy answer because uh, if, if, I'm, if I'm being very frank, mm. uh, what you say is 25%? Mm -hmm. Have confidence? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Because I'm in the 75, mm. if I'm being honest. Um, Why is that? Why, what don't you have confidence about? That they're overly politicized? Yes. Or that they're trying yes. to create law from? from no. I, that, that, I, 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 yeah. I think this, this current court is overly politicized. Yeah. I think this current court is not making decisions that are based on, that are based on either legal precedent nor legal baseline. Saying, I think these are political saying that, nonetheless, um, the system is that you elect a president who gets to select his no, judges. Of course. Of course. So um, how, and, and actually one interesting thing about the court is that the most highly, polis, or highly publicized cases yeah. split 9-0. An awful lot of cases don't split in the way that right. you would think. And we've got a former justice right here in Justice Kennedy who yeah. was kind of known to be a is, is it a terrible thing to call you a swing boat, that you were a swing boat? Is that awful? It's fine. It's fine. Okay. <laughs> so one of the questions I think that is being asked here is, uh, given the nature of the confirmation process, which really does undermine confidence, because it is very politicized, it is. and it looks mm -hmm. as if nobody, you know, it's, if it's 51 Right. 49 in every, then people do lose, lose confidence. Yeah. Are your uh, courts elected? Your Supreme no, Court? No, I, I nominate and, and, and confirm. And how does it go? It goes great. I've nominated Republicans and Democrats. I never ask anyone their, their political affiliation and, and we go. I probably I agree. Yeah. So yeah. I, I would do, you know, I do believe in the Supreme Court. I hate a lot of their decisions. I hate their, the outcomes. But Look, I, I see conservative justices that have voted more liberal. I've seen, you know, there are swing votes there, right? If, if every Trump or, or, or Bush nominee voted only strictly on the conservative side and every Obama uh, and Biden nominee only conservative voted on the liberal side, I, I would agree. But I think on some of the more high profile stuff, it happens. So I would, I would agree with you. I get really frustrated with the Supreme Court. Um, I think they are, but to your point, that's the system, right? Um, the fact that we talk about a con oh, that's a conservative justice and that's a liberal justice. That's right there one of the problems, right? We've othered them <laughs> before we've even given them a shot yeah. to do right. So I, I might hate the decisions, but, um, and I think they do get political a bit, but th in theory, they shouldn't have to, be, they, there's, no buy there's no benefit in being political, right? Because they're not getting elected again. Right? They have the job for life if they want. I mean, they're free of the politics of it technically. So I think we nom maybe we nominate very extreme justices on an extreme conservative 
uh, bent or a extreme liberal bent, but I don't think they're doing it for political purposes per se. Um, I'm a big believer the more the justice is sent back to the states, the better. Uh, right? I mean, like you said, there's, there's a lot of functions of the federal government, and that should be dealt on the federal side. But the more the justices can send back to the states, the more West can do right by his state, the more New Hampshire I can do right by my state, and the more the citizens have a say in, in, in you know, finding that best path. But I, and I, and, and I, think, I think that's right, but I, I think um, it is one of the dynamics that we're seeing where you are then putting a lot of that pressure on these state and individual courts. Because we're, we're in the same mm -hmm. boat yeah. where, you know, we appoint our judges. And, mm -hmm. and I tell you, when people talk about what is one of the invisible superpowers of a governor, it's that. It's one of the most important things mm -hmm. that governors do that nobody talks about during election years. Yeah. That the governors mm -hmm. are the ones appointing these judges. Who are saying, because frankly, there are going to be judges who are going to be making decisions in the state of Maryland who I will appoint, who will be in their seats long after I have already done my two terms. Two terms right? Um, <laughs> long after. And there is a real power that the governors have. I, I think my frustration um, comes back to when I think about the lens that I make my judicial appointments. I'm looking for people that are really, there's two kind of lenses that I have. One is I'm looking for people who are true, who are true jurists. To your point, I never, I don't ask political affiliation. I don't ask what your party, none, none of that. People who are scholars of the law, and who are going to apply the law, even when the law might disagree with where you are in a certain value. It doesn't matter, it's the law. Your job is to apply that. The second thing is people who are not gonna be robots in robes. We need human beings who are gonna sit there and understand the human component of every person that stands in front of you. But when I think about you know, some of the things that, you know, for example, and I'll just take one example, uh, where in, our, in, our, you know, in, in my first session, we ended up passing laws that did things like enhanced privacy when it comes to people who are looking for or who are seeking abortions, enhancing protections for both patients and providers, and also doing things like you are not going to criminalize somebody who chooses to have an abortion in the state of Maryland, and now next year, next year it is gonna be on the ballot where we are looking to put abortion access and reproductive health in Maryland's constitution because it's a way of being able to guard against something that I think was just a, it was, it was a, a baseless decision by the Supreme Court. And so that's where I think my frustration comes yeah. into. And again, that goes back to what you're saying about it, put more stuff in the states yeah. that I don't, that the Supreme Court should not have I was just gonna say, that. isn't that actually yeah. kind of proof of exactly yeah. what you're saying? Yeah. Uh, these systems are supposed to work together. And so if you get decisions in the court uh, that appear to be, quote, against the will of the people, even if they are uh, jurisdiction, uh, jur as jurists, they've mm -hmm. done the right thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, it can go back to the states, yeah. and it's gone, yeah. gone to you. Let me take one more question. Jeez, I, yeah, I get to choose, huh? Right here. Uh, I just, uh, the uh, crisis in the Middle East has exposed a lot of hatred and even more fear. How do we heal? Yeah. So I will say this, I, I think we have a lot of cultural problems in the country, uh, and, and this is yet another one. I, I'm, I'm floored with the level of anti-Semitism that you're seeing out there. Abso I mean, I never, I, I, I was ignorant. I really never thought it was at that level. You always saw pieces of it here, right? Um, I was floored years ago, not many years ago, when you saw all this white supremacy 
And I, well, holy cow, this is still here this, at that level in this country? So never doubt how flawed, how, how many problems that could be out there. I'll say this, through all the cultural problems, I hate wokeism, I hate cancel culture. Through all of this, though, very little of it will be solved by a better law. Very little of it is going to be solved by a better politician. These are cultural problems that are solved in our communities, person to person, one on one, right? And making sure that we, every single one of us, participate in that. Don't go home and say, I can't believe all this anti-Semitism. I hope someone fixes this. You fix it. You talk to your kids. You work with your community. You volunteer your time. Whatever it is, whatever your passion is. And so I just, I, I, everyone, oh, if we, just had, if we just elect the right side, it'll be fixed. It, it doesn't work like that it, it, I, on the cultural things. And this is a, cult, a, a, a cultural crisis. And if I can go back to something Wes brought up, you know, it starts, I'm not blaming the media, uh, but media is an institution, of, of, you know, and, and having free and open media. Um, media is incredibly biased. Social media is a new institution, if you want to even call that. So what, what is their role? One thing the politicians and the elected officials can do is create the guidelines there. I'm not saying control the voice of the media, but what role are we going to have? And I think that's, going, that's a ping pong ball going back and forth. What role is the government in, right now it's on the social media side, right? Uh, when there's hate speech, when there's uh, things that are clearly not true, is it Facebook's job to shut that down? Is it Fox's or CNN's job to shut that down? So I think, and the laws and rules around that, I think are still, this is still a very big gray area. How people consume this information that kind of light that fire in their heart that I believe is very hateful, but then I say, boy, where did that come from? Right, that didn't just come, this isn't necessarily an evil person. This is someone that has just a complete, I believe, wrong view of the world, probably a, a complete ignorance of civics and institutions and where the, a lot of this came from. So that's where I think the government can get involved in, in, in shaping some of the framework of, of making sure we consume um, you know, information that is you know, free and fair and, and open and allows that to happen. But I'm still a believer these are cultural crises and the best solutions, not the only, but the best solutions are going to come from each of us as individuals going home and not just flipping on another uh, episode of Yellowstone or whatever it is, right? <laughs> Saying, how can I do it? Not, but you don't have to be an activist. Let's start with your own kids. Have I instilled, what have I instilled with my kids today about civics, foundations, good, bad, evil, terrorism versus, you know, all of this stuff. Um, and you can use the issues of the day to do that. So, yeah. I, I, I'd say, um, it is, um, it's been staggering how much time, and I know I'm, I'm probably speaking for Dominic the same way, how much time I have had to spend with my cabinet secretaries, with my head of state police, with our federal partners, FBI, on this rise of both anti-Semitism and anti-Muslim hate that we're seeing in our state. Um, it's staggering how much time I now have to spend on this issue. Uh, and also how many resources now, you know, we just, we just, you know, put an additional $5 million towards, uh, towards hardening homes of worship hmm. because no one should be fear. No one should be fearful when they're going in to worship God, but this is where we are. Um, I, I, I could not agree more on the idea of how we have to spend time to educate and how we have to be. We have to be unapologetic about our ability to be able to educate because education and this stuff does matter. One thing I've realized is that for the vast majority of people, um, they are in the unsure and willing to be educated range. You know, you are going to get that, 
but the vast majority of people are the unsure and willing to be educated. And so when you're having conversations with them about some of the realities of things that are happening, some of the realities of, of, of these groups, um, you know, I, I, uh, you know, I was saying earlier, and the secretary knows this, you know, I, uh, I did my master's and I'm all but dissertation. I will get it done, Madam Secretary, right. at some point. Um, Holding you to it, Governor. Oh, yes, I, I will get it done, I promise. I'll get that dissertation done. Um, but on the rise and ramifications of radical Islamism in the Western Hemisphere, specifically focusing on groups like Hamas and Hezbollah, et cetera. And when you're having conversations with individuals about, about this in these groups, they're willing to be they're willing to listen, understand, educate, et cetera. So we have to be unapologetic about our ability to be able to not simply dismiss, not simply push away, but educate. And to the governor's point, laws do matter. And I remember Dr. King has a quote where he said, laws don't change the heart, but laws can protect me from the heartless. Mm -hmm. And we have to make sure we have laws that are in place, that are making sure that people can feel safe and secure in their neighborhoods, in their communities, and in their homes of worship. With that, with that, I wanna thank Governor Sununu, Governor Moore. I wanna thank all of you for, uh, I think, uh, being a party to what I think was a very enlightening conversation. Holy crap, that's General Mattis, hey. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry, that was all, I got, I, I'm, oh, I'm yeah. sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt, I got all excited. All right, that's all right. such a, I'm such a fan. Yeah, yeah he's, he's a good guy, actually. Yeah, yeah. I'm so sorry. They're, no, 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 they're speaking of uh, one of our Hoover senior fellows, uh, yeah. General Jim Mattis, uh, sitting over there. Speaking of serving the country in difficult times, thank Amen. you, Jim. Wow. Yes. Amen. But I really want to thank the two of you. I want to thank you for modeling the kind of uh, behavior that we hope to see more of uh, in government. Thank you. And I want to thank you for ideas that we will pursue at our new Center for the it. Revitalization of American yes. Institutions. And thank you guys. Thank, thank you very much. Thank you. That was That's awesome. Great. Thank you so much.